It has been said that ideas go booming through the world like cannons. Thoughts are mightier than armies, and principles have achieved more victories than horsemen or chariots. Inspiring ideas, transformational thoughts, and powerful principles are exactly what America and the world need in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. So today we turn to the world's great thinkers, historically principled idea guys, and the ultimate policy entrepreneur. Former Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich, joins us from Rome, Italy, for a deep dive and elevating conversation on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? An intellectually fearless visionary and historian, former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich, is one of the foremost economic, social, political, and security-focused conservative thinkers today. He's well-known as the architect of the Contract with America that led the Republican Party to victory in 1994 by capturing a majority in the United States House for the first time in 40 years. He also ran for president in 2012. Today, Newt is the chairman of Gingrich 360, a full-service American consulting, education, and media production group that connects the past, present, and future through its prolific author. Mr. Speaker, thanks for joining us today. Well, that's quite a build-up, but I'm delighted to have a chance to talk with you. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there is a lot going on in the world today. We appreciate you uh, getting us uh, live from Rome today. And uh, you have been in a, a very unique uh, position there with uh, your wife, who is a, a brilliant thinker and writer in her own right, uh, as ambassador from the United States to the Holy See there in the Vatican. First, just give us some perspective. What has it been like uh, being in Rome throughout this pandemic? Well, Italy was hit unusually hard because there are about 100,000 Chinese workers in northern Italy. And um, the Italian government, for politically correctness reasons, didn't want to cut off the flights from, from China. So for a number of weeks, they were importing the disease, and it spread uh, very deeply across northern Italy to such a degree that they basically had to close everything down. We got to a point where in the entire country, you could have uh, grocery stores, pharmacies or gas stations, but nothing else. People were told to stay home. You could get a $3,200 fine if you were in the street without a good reason. And uh, for about eight weeks, the place was totally locked down. Began to open up in the last few days. I was out today looking and I realized that there are more people on the street. There are more people doing things. A little bit more encouraging. Uh, but it's it, they're going to have a long climb back because Italy depends about 14% of its economy is uh, tourism. And uh, in the near future, there aren't going to be any tourists. And so they're faced with a very, very big challenge of how to get this system working again. And I think that it, it's going to be uh, quite a project to see if they what, what they do and how they do it. I, I do think it's going to be just a, an extraordinary next steps, uh, both abroad and, and at home. I've been dying to ask you, uh, you, you've been in this interesting position for since 2017, uh, living over there in Rome. Uh, in addition to all your international work. But you've sort of had this opportunity, kind of a uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, to look at the United States, to look at America from abroad during some really pivotal times. What has that been like for you? What have you learned? Well, it's, it's, been, it's been very helpful in a way because although up until uh, the middle of March I was running back and forth, and I've, I've spent about a third of my time in the States. But now that I've been here for the last uh, 10 weeks, looking back, you, you, you see the forest uh, and you see patterns that make you sort of uh, 
shake your head or scratch your head. There's a brilliant uh, writer named Claire Berlinski who recently wrote an essay on uh, the age of hysteria. And I think it captured something fundamental about what's going on right now. We have reacted, I would argue we have overreacted to the problems we're faced with and that uh, we have a lot of reasons to believe that, that this is in the end going to be manageable. But the pattern of social media and the pattern of the news media makes it harder for all of us to find a way to, to try to just you know make, make practical common sense out of what we're experiencing. So I think in that sense, uh, I see things more like a historian. I look at stuff and I think as a historian that uh, we have an enormous disservice by, from our news media because they refuse to take these things seriously and slow down and actually try to cover them. And if you watch sometimes uh, President Trump's interaction with these reporters, it's, it's, it's pathetic because they go for the dumbest, lowest quality question as though it makes any sense, and they skip all of the really, a lot of big questions that should be asked. In fact, my newsletter today is going to ask the question about this Imperial College in London who said 2,200,000 Americans were going to die. Well, a lot of our policies were based on that level of fear because, you know, that would be literally about five times the number of people who were killed in World War II. Mm -hmm. About a thousand times the number of people who died at 9-11. So if you're the president and somebody walks in and says, the scientist, and they're always scientists, the scientist has told us this. Just out of just basic common sense and decency, you have to take very, very bold steps because you realize that you're, these people are uh, in danger of losing an enormous number of people. Well, it turns out that that, that estimate was totally wrong. Uh, this, this is a problem. It's, it's a significant problem. But it is nothing like the level of, of, of fear and panic of the people have been sold on. And I think that that's a very important lesson for all of us to learn. I want to go one step further with that because you've uh, as a student of history, you've you've studied all of the, the great and written extensively uh, about so many great leaders over time, over history. And, and again, from your unique vantage point, you've been up close uh, to the highest levels of power uh, here in the United States. You've seen it around the world. And now, again, you're watching this from a very interesting perch right now. Uh, what have you learned in terms of leadership in a crisis? To stay calm. And the most, the most important characteristic of great leaders is the ability to be calm and to look at the facts, and then when you make a decision, to live it out, to recognize that implementing the decision is as big a deal as making the decision, and sometimes that means you've got to stick to something even when everyone around you disagrees. And I frankly have admired President Trump for the, the way in which the courage he has shown in going out here and, and in standing up for what he believes and at times taking risks. I mean, he, he has said things that got him in some trouble, but he's always pushing, 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 and he's trying to find a way to both defeat the virus and to reestablish the economy. And I think that that's a pretty good goal. I think that's a challenge, too, in that I, I think many have, have put that as a uh, the ultimate in Washington fake fight and false choice, that it's either you know the economy or lives uh, and there's no middle ground, and yet it's the, the leadership. It's what you did with the contract in America in capturing the imagination of the American people about some practical, tactical things that could be done uh, to make the country better. Well, that's right. And look, the fact is we're going to have to get the economy starting again. And we're going to have to get people back to work. And if you look at, at a number of states, we get because of the nature of where the news media is located, we are much too much affected by New York City. I mean, New York City is a disaster, partially because the quality of government, uh, both the city government and the state government, is so bad. 
that a lot of people, frankly, uh, New York will be a, a case study. And how, how could that many people die in one city? And then you look at the whole rest of the country, and there, there, are, there are places in the country where virtually nobody has the, the virus. And you have to say to yourself, so why would you lock up people in, in a place where nobody has the virus? And yet the people who want this nationwide automatic shut everything down, I think, are doing a great disservice to what we have to learn how to do and how we have to learn to do it. I think that's so critical. And that leads me to uh, something else I wanted to get in with you, and that is the, the role of federalism. That was a, a big part of your leadership as speaker to, to make sure that the federal government was doing the things that only the federal government can do and then letting the states do what they need to do. What is the role of federalism in all of this? Well, I, I, I actually I do a free podcast at Newt's World, and we just did an interview with Krista Muth, who had written a brilliant paper in which she said, this is the first time we've had a crisis and the federal government has not tried to take over everything. And he gave Trump great credit for saying each governor has to know their state, and they have to make decisions. So Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, a state which has had a very, very low death rate, is taking a bigger gamble. Meanwhile, the governor of Illinois has the whole state locked down, even though in southern Illinois that's an irrational policy. But he's going to have to bear the cost of that. And I think the president was very wise to get this stuff decentralized. Now, there are things the federal government can do. The federal government can close the border. The federal government can say, uh, we are not going to allow people to come in here who have diseases. The federal government can, can acquire resources and then get them to the states. I mean, if you look, for example, at New York City when it was at its worst state, President Trump was pouring resources into the state. And as a result, you had a lot of people who... They said they thought they were, for example, going to be uh, short of hospital beds. Well, uh, we built one hospital up there in four days. We moved a, a Navy hospital ship up there. I mean, by the time they got done, they had really very dramatically improved things in a way uh, that people would not have thought possible. And I think uh, that's a real tribute to the American ability uh, to go out and do these things. And I think that the president, in that sense, was... was uh, wisely participating uh, where he had to, but at the same time, he wants the mayor, he wants the governor, he wants local community leaders, he wants all of them to be engaged in uh, saving their own community. I think that's so vital and, and such uh, a part of the American fabric. Uh, we've, we've been watching a uh, thing here in Utah where civil society has just come together between faith groups and hospitals and the universities, and they have produced 5 million masks. So 10,000 people a week go pick up uh, a bunch of kits. They sew 100 masks each. They bring them back on Saturday. Uh, it's been going for three weeks now. Three million masks are, are in. Uh, and uh, civil society, talk to us about that a little bit in terms of how you think that's going to be vital to America's future. Well, look, I, I think that's an important part of what makes America so unique. It's something that uh, a French observer, de Tocqueville, wrote about in the 1830s. Uh, he said, uh, well, you know, America is not just government and it's not just business. It is also going to be uh, a country where people organize themselves voluntarily to help their own communities in a way that virtually no other country in the world does. And he, he was very passionate about this. He thought it was one of the things that made us uh, such a unique country. And I think as a result, uh, we have been in a position to uh, organize ourselves and to do things that... Uh, uh, other countries have found very, very hard. 
Uh, I want to go now from the from the federal, from the really local level, the civil society space. I want to go all the way to the international stage where you've done a, a lot of great thinking, a lot of writing. Uh, your book uh, that came out last year, Trump versus China, Facing America's Greatest Threat, very prophetic in many ways in terms of the, where we are with China right now. Give us just a, a quick snapshot of how you think that relationship is. And I want to ask you specifically, I think one of the big threats to American entrepreneurs and businesses is the intellectual property problem over there in China. Give us some uh, international perspective. Well, I, I wrote uh, Trump versus China because I felt that uh, this was a huge issue that we had to engage in and that we had to recognize that China was not what we thought it was, uh, that in fact uh, the Chinese have been, I think, uh, very, very difficult to deal with. They have, uh, by every standard that I'm aware of, they have cheated uh, dramatically on their willingness to steal things. The Obama's director of national intelligence said at one point in 2015 that the Chinese steal between four and $500 billion a year in intellectual property, more than all of our exports to China combined. And I think that we're just, you know, we're, we're just not used to dealing with a country that thinks and acts at that level. And as a result, uh, they have on a significant number of occasions taken advantage of us. And I think you know, that's something we really have to come to grips with. And it's, it's a little difficult because it's, it's hard for Americans to believe that there could be a totalitarian government, uh, which as a matter of, of automatic behavior tries to steal from all of its neighbors. But that's reality, that that is who we're dealing with. And therefore, I think we're going to have to find ways to be able to deal with them and to be able to be much tougher minded than we have been up till now. So I want to take you now to uh, to Washington, and uh, obviously there's uh, the typical division uh, continues to go there. You have those who are profiting off of that division, as they always have, uh, you know, with the fake fights and the false choices. Uh, but I think there are also some some members there in D.C. who are policy entrepreneurs who can get some exciting things going. Uh, we used to always say in uh, in the Lee office, my phrase was, if there's a, an idea meeting or a policy entrepreneurship meeting going on, former Speaker Gingrich isn't in the room. It doesn't count <laughs> as a creative meeting. But what are what are some of the creative things? What are some of the ideas you wish Congress would get to and address? Well, I think, first of all, they should get back to realizing that Congress at its best is a collection of committees and that each of those committees can be doing serious work. I mean, you could have people looking seriously at the Chinese and what happened with the virus and where did it come from and what does that mean. You could have uh, people looking at the whole process of, of these phony uh, estimates that we get and because of everything that's been wrong about the estimates about the virus can take right around and look at everything that is wrong with, for example, all the projections on, on global warming, because uh, it's, it's the same pattern. You get from the computer what you put into the computer, uh, and so you can rig the game. And, and these people have had an enormous, devastating impact when the Imperial College analysis came out and said 500,000 Britons and 2.2 million Americans could die. Well, that, that set the stage for a very radical position. So Congress ought to be looking into that. Congress should also be looking into how do we bring all of the health care production back to the U.S.? That would be an example of something very important. Great insight. So appreciate that. And uh, there, there is much that those committees can be doing, real work, as you say, that, uh, sure. that can really move the country. I mean, it, should, it shouldn't all be based on McConnell and, and uh, Schumer and McCarthy and Pelosi. There, there are another, you know, the 535 members of the House and Senate. They all have work to do. 
<laughs> I, I think we often forget that. I think there's a, uh, an abdication problem there where uh, the leaders of both parties end up kind of driving the ship most of the time. Right. Therefore, what? All right. Well, as we as we come down the home stretch here, I want to go back to to where we began: ideas, thoughts, principles, history. The program is is therefore what. So we always end the program uh, with the therefore what question. So as you look at the country and as you look at the world from your unique experience, uh, people have been listening to this program. Uh, what's the therefore what for you? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope people do different as a result of listening today? Well, I hope they realize that. Uh this is going to pass, that uh, we're, we're Americans, we can create an amazingly good future, and that uh, the challenge to us is to go out and do it. I mean, uh, America was created by people of enormous courage who came from all over the world, uh, who pursued dreams, who were willing to work hard, take risks, and constantly learn. Wonderful. Former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, thanks so much for joining us on There For What today. Thank you. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What.